you don't have a thousand bucks to spend on ads, you shouldn't launch a company. Hey, my name is Felix Tian. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn the business model you should follow to improve your chances of success, how they created an 11,000 subscriber email list before ever launching, and why a completely unrelated Reddit post drives them traffic and sales. Today, I'm joined by Colin McIntosh from Sheets and Giggles. Sheets and Giggles makes the world's most sustainable bedding out of eucalyptus fibers that are naturally soft and more breathable and more moisture-wicking than the, even the best cotton sheets. And was started in 2018 and based out of Denver, Colorado, and is on track this year to $2.4 million in sales. Welcome, Colin. Hey, Felix. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on. So your story actually starts from a, a darker time than the the kind of very optimistic <laughs> picture I just painted. So you you mentioned to us that you you ran BizDev at a wearable tech startup in the same town that you're in today, or in Denver, like same place you are today. And you guys raised three three million dollars in seed seed round and grew to a team of twenty five. And you were kind of everywhere. Things were looking good, and all of a sudden. Everything just ended in September 2017. And <laughs> from that day on, you've recognized that this is the best opportunity for you to go off on your own. Tell us about that day. Tell us about that realization that you had after that that kind of fallout. Sure. And so basically at, at that point, um, you know, I had just been laid off on a on a Monday from a company that uh, I you know, I put a lot of heart and soul and energy into, um, I had actually written, you know, part of the original business plan years before, uh, this. And so it was really hard to see it come to such an abrupt end. Um, and you know, basically, uh, at least for me, um, the company technically still, still exists, of course. Um, but basically, uh, I think the next day I kind of slept in until about noon. <laughs> uh, and then I, uh, took about a week off, just, uh, you know, cleaned up my apartment, got my head, head together. And then I decided I'm going to do one of two things. I'm going to go work at a large company, maybe move back to Seattle where I was living before, go work at Amazon, um, you know, slide back into my old life out there, um, or start my own company. Uh, and I figured that I was in a really good position to do so. I was in Denver, Colorado. I had really good connections from the prior two years of working in the community in both the Boulder and Denver area. And I had some mentors who uh, were encouraging me to think about my own company. And so basically at that point, I built a business model that I felt really passionate about. It happened to be a direct-to-consumer business model because of everything that I had learned at my last company. And I incorporated it in October 2017, and Sheets and Giggles was born. Awesome. I kind of like how you you're kind of hinting at like a methodical process that you went through to to come up with sheets and giggles. So you decided to start a company. Let's start off with how did you figure out what you even wanted to to build or what you what you even wanted to to sell? Sure. So bottom line was my last company, I had a physical product that I got really good at selling and distributing through retail, Amazon.com. And I had learned a ton over those couple of years uh, running BizDev there. And so I knew first and foremost my initial criteria was I need my physical product that is my own brand. Uh, and from a high level, you're absolutely right where I said, I'm gonna build a business model that's gonna work for me, that I'm gonna think I'm gonna be best at the world at, and then I'm going to build and adapt a product 
to fit into that model, which is kind of the opposite of what most startup founders do, to be totally honest. Most people spend years of their life building a product that they're very, very passionate about, and then they try to go to market with it, and they find it very difficult to build a business model that's profitable, scalable, and sustainable around this product that they've been building for so many years. So I want to take a quick pause here. I want to ask this question. Like, so if you build a business model, you can essentially plug more than one type of product, even more than one industry into it? You could, yeah. And if you think about it like this with sheets and giggles and, and betting, right? I basically, my initial criteria was physical product, low complexity supply chain, massive commodities market, highly fragmented marketplace with no market leader that I had to chip away at, uh, no brand differentiation or loyalty across the industry, and then something that was largely traditionally physical retail that I could help bring online with a direct-to-consumer model. And so I basically looked across, <laughs> if I'm being totally honest, um, all of the websites that I owned, and I own sheetsgiggles.com because I uh, buy domains whenever I think of a business idea, and I've thought of this maybe a year prior, um, and betting fit the criteria almost perfectly. But that's not to say it's the only thing that did. It was just the one that I both had the model almost locked in perfectly and that I had a fantastic brand name for where I felt I could really build a brand that was my my own personality because I think a company's brand has to be the founder's personality and just zig where everybody else zags in this in, in this really boring old space. Guys, let's talk about the, the that list of criteria that that you mentioned. So we'll, we'll kind of walk through. So the first thing you mentioned is that a large commodities market. What does that mean, and why is that important? Well, so betting is a twelve billion dollar category in the U.S. alone, and home textiles, which you know includes towels and drapes and throw blankets. Uh, is about $22 billion. And it's growing about 10% year over year. And so uh, there's been some noise in this space, but really it's a it's a big, boring space. When you ask people where you buy your bedding, they normally say Bed Bath or Target or Amazon. And these are all retail brands that sell vendors. And so I, I really like the opportunity for, and you know, when you think about it, other commodity spaces, it's really anything that is just mostly price sensitive, uh, very little product differentiation, um, and that is a really massive everyday needs type category. And you can see there's examples of people who have done this in other spaces, right? Casper and other brands in the bedding and the mattress industry. Uh, you've got native deodorant, Quip toothbrushes, uh, and so I really love this model where you can take something that's an everyday item. And you can differentiate meaningfully on the product side, which, you know, our sheets are softer, more breathable, and more sustainable than cotton. The eucalyptus lyocell is absolutely incredible. Uh, and then you can differentiate meaningfully on your brand and customer service and customer experience. And then because you're not going into retail, you also have better or more competitive pricing. And so it's just a really, I think, really important in order to lock into why you're choosing the market that you're choosing. And it's got to be all about business model reasons, not necessarily product reasons. Cause I think, I think a lot of people get hung up on that. Got it. So how do you know what you should be focusing on to differentiate on the product and on the brand? Like is being different enough or should, how do you know what you should be focusing your time, energy, your capital, your resources on to make better than what's already out there? That's a great question to get, I think to take it to a more tactical level, because I think a lot of people might be more interested in this on the strategic side. Basically, we were going to do a crowdfunding campaign. I always knew I wanted to do a crowdfunding campaign. I didn't want to raise venture capital right away. I knew uh, the dangers of that. I knew the time commitment of that. 
And I knew the failure rate of that, quite frankly. And I'm starting a betting company based off a pun. I mean, <laughs> I didn't know <laughs> if venture capitalists were going to be uh, super stoked on this. And so basically, I knew I was going to do a crowdfunding campaign, either Kickstarter or Indiegogo. And generally speaking, on a high level for those crowdfunding campaigns, you need three core value props of differentiation for your product. And so for us, it was it is literally softer, lower surface friction than cotton. Um, and for hot sleepers, it's obviously more breathable and more cooling. And it's just, you know, I, again, I keep saying it's the best product, shameless product plug. Uh, number two is that it's incredibly sustainable, uses 96% less water than cotton sheets, um, no insecticides, no pesticides. Uh, it's considered the most sustainable fabric in the world. And then number three is that because we weren't doing uh, deals with any retailers at the time, we were only doing our .com. We were able to offer on our Indiegogo our sheets for, I think, $69 for any size set, uh, which frankly was underpriced. But compared to Bed Bath & Beyond's eucalyptus option, they have a eucalyptus origin set for $180 for a king. We, we obliterated them from a pricing perspective. And so uh, people really responded well to those three value props. And so not everybody's value props need to be the same. But I do think you need a, a meaningful differentiation in three distinct spaces in order to convince people to give you a shot over, over another existing brand. Got it. So now once you decide what the value prop is, do you then have to, I guess, obviously balance that with like what is actually achievable? Like what kind of, can I create this? Like what was that next step for you? Did you actually start with the value prop first or took a look at what's possible in terms of sourcing, in terms of building actual products? Uh, that's such an interesting question. So I actually started with the idea for bamboo sheets because it was a large existing market and I really wanted to make some noise on Amazon and, and a pretty big category that was already on the upswing. Um, <clears throat> ended up realizing that bamboo, frankly, just wasn't exciting enough for people from a crowdfunding perspective. Did a lot more material sourcing and product research, met with a bunch of different manufacturers um, all across the globe. And that's when I discovered the the eucalyptus material, which was really untapped in terms of market penetration. Uh, and so I, I, for me, as an average American, it really felt like something special. Did a lot more research into the durability of the product, into uh, the color fastness, the sustainability. Uh, you know, did some different designs and sampling. And so I think that uh, when you decide your value props, they should fit into the business model, right? So everything is goal oriented. The goal was we need to have a six figure crowdfunding campaign in order to get off the ground. And then the tasks in order to do that, you can, you can literally be completely agnostic as to the tasks. And that's, I think what has made S and G grow so quickly is that I set these goals and then I'm completely dispassionate about the tasks I need to take to achieve them. So my initial task was source a bamboo sheets manufacturer and it very quickly morphed into source a well-established stable eucalyptus fiber bed sheets manufacturer um, who was ethical and, and someone that I felt comfortable doing business with. And, uh, you know, and then we had to obviously do our designs and tech packs but we didn't really begin manufacturing or invest in that side of the business until after the product was pre-sold on Indiegogo. We basically waited for the first week of sales in order to have our sizing and color distribution sample size. Um, and then we were off to the races from there. But we did have that, that agreement in writing with our manufacturer ahead of the Indiegogo um, but yeah, everything should follow the business model and, uh, and should be frankly changed on a dime if need be to suit the business. 
And that's what you mean by being agnostic and dispassionate about the task so that you're not reacting emotionally and instead actually looking at it objectively? Exactly. I mean, tons and tons of founders and CEOs. And I I just went through uh, a startup program called Techstars. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Techstars. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, you know, it's the, the, one of the best accelerators, if not the best accelerator in the world. And I, 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 that's really the second time I've been through it. Um, And it, it's interesting. I love everybody I, I meet in the ecosystem uh, but I do see a lot with, with founders and it's, and it's very obvious as to why, right? They have this baby, they have this idea that they've been working on forever. Usually it's a solution to a problem that's extremely personal to them. And, and a lot of times that can be good because it keeps you, um, just completely passionate and engaged on what you're building, no matter what the obstacles are. But a lot of times it ends up in the founder who's often also the CEO, uh, making decisions that are emotional and not reality based. Um, and so I, I really am passionate about my business and passionate about my customers and passionate about making people's lives better, making people happy, uh, success. And then the product itself is the best the product can be for the business. Um, and you know, that, that, is you'll be seeing our evolution of, as a brand and a company as we release our eucalyptus throw blankets, our eucalyptus comforters, um, eucalyptus towels down the road. We're going to be building a whole sustainable home textiles brand. And, you know, if I, if I was someone who was really passionate about one specific category, I, I might not feel the same way. Mm. How do you make sure you aren't, I guess, slowly falling in love too much with the with the product, with the brand, <laughs> and getting these kind of rose tinted glasses? Because, I mean, do you find it difficult to build a brand that's that is a spitting image of you as the founder, and then also trying to avoid making emotional decisions? Well, I sleep in my product every night, so I'm I'm uh, very <laughs> close to it. Um, and uh, you know, my my family sleeps in it. My friends, my investors, my uh, I get emails and phone calls every day from, we have, you know, tens of thousands of customers across the country now. Uh, and, and people love this stuff. And, and I, it's interesting. I think when I started out, I don't think I realized exactly the impact. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big person when it comes to sustainability and, and climate change is a hot button issue of mine. So I'm very happy to be building a sustainable home textiles brand. I mean, trust me, it's, it's what gets me out of bed some mornings. Um, but I think I underestimated the impact that the sheets would have on certain people's lives. I mean, when you're talking about uh, hot sleepers, women who are pregnant, women in menopause, uh, people who have extremely sensitive skin, eczema, uh, really bad allergies. Uh, it's it's really awesome to me to have built a product and to now have shipped you know tens of thousands of units of that product to people who are sleeping better through the night and who email us and let us know what a game changer it is for them. I think I probably took that for granted when I was first starting the business, to be totally honest with you. And so that that keeps me more engaged, I think, on the product side is, is again, it always goes back to the customer. It always goes back to the person who gets the box, who opens it, who washes it, puts it on their bed, lies down there for the first time. What do they think to themselves? What do they think when they wake up the next morning? What do they tell people? And, and what do they tell us? And I think that that helps keep me grounded without me being me saying, okay, well, we're not going to change this because people love this or we'll never change this because we've gotten good receptions. I'm always just thinking about continuous improvement on the product side. And it all goes back to feedback we get from our customers. We literally choose our colors based on customer surveys. We choose the size of our sheets based on customer surveys. We choose 
um, our, you know, uh, our next product lines based on customer surveys. We do everything according to what people tell us they want, because frankly, I think people are smart enough to, to tell us what they want. That makes sense. So you, you kind of go in this with this approach of making sure you love the customer first and then change the product, change what you need to, to make sure the customer is happy. You lead with this desire to, to provide great customer service. So that makes sense. Yeah. 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 I was inspired actually by Amazon on that side. Their, their obsession with the customer is obviously legendary and, and I love that focus. I think it's maniacal and it's great for a business. Nice. So you mentioned, so the next thing that we have on his list here is a highly fragmented market with no clear leader. <laughs> what's the threshold? What's like the threshold here? How do you know what, what is considered a fragmented market? Um, anything where, and if I'm, I think there's two, two answers here. One is there's a data driven answer where you can say, okay, who's the biggest brand when it comes to betting? And if you look throughout the market and you see that there's, you know, some folks who are doing a hundred million dollars in revenue, who are doing, you know, 75 million in revenue, bunch of folks in that, in that category, tons of people in the 10 to $50 million revenue range. And, you know, on a broader level, it's a $12 billion marketplace. Um, it's, it's not really uh, that hard to see from a from a data driven perspective, um, as long as there's no one with I would say you know at least like a twenty percent type margin share. I mean, if you look at the home security market, for example, obviously ADT, Alarm. dot com, uh, Vivint, and if in that, I mean, really, there's a couple other players beyond that. Uh, that's a perfect example of a of a you know highly concentrated marketplace. And so you really want to make sure that there's no one who owns uh, you know at least twenty percent of the marketplace, and then. From a uh, from a in a second perspective, an intuitive perspective, uh, you can simply ask people, "Hey, if you were to buy X product tomorrow—socks, sheets, sunglasses, coffee table—like what? I mean, you can start naming all these different products that people buy lots of. Uh, a lot of them are going to say, "Oh, I, I, don't know, I go to I go to Target, or I'll go to X retailer," uh, and they don't even realize that they're actually buying a brand. Uh, half the time when they go to those retail spaces. And so I think there's also an intuitive uh, level to it and just understanding what people around you think and are saying. And then when you start to get an email list, you can actually literally do surveys of a thousand plus people and get that qualitative data in a more, uh, you know, analytical way. Got it. So walking down this list, I think the next ones make sense. No brand loyalty or affinity, very tied closely to your answer just from before right. uh, and with little brand differentiation. So this next one, which is a, a product that was traditionally physical retail that you could help bring online with the direct to consumer model. So does this, uh, I think a lot of people will see this, they might see, oh, this is going to be, they can see two ways. One is like an opportunity, which is what you saw, but then also people can see like, oh, this is like a big lift on my side because there is no model like this that exists yet. So what did you see here with your, in, in, in particular to uh, Sheets and Giggles, or what did you see that was available at the time? So the, the biggest inspiration for me in this was Casper. So Casper is the fastest company ever to $100 million in revenue. They did, they did that in 12 months. And they did it because they asked the question in 2014 of, will people buy mattresses online? And they asked it at the perfect time. There was no competition. Facebook ads were cheap and highly effective. Smartphone purchasing was at an alt, like a, a huge peak adoption curve. And there was a huge uh, inefficiency opportunity in terms of mobile ad buying versus desktop ad buying and the pricing there. And they 
came in with a very basic $1,000 mattress product, one SKU, and well, they had a queen and king. And they basically said, all right, great. Here's the mattress. It's the Casper mattress. Would you like it? It's $1,000, total happiness guaranteed, 100-night sleep. We'll drop it off. You don't have to pick it up at a store. What do you think? And people just jumped at it. And the mattress industry is about a $15 billion U.S. industry. And so it's similar size to bed sheets. And so I was very inspired by that. And, and I took it as more of an opportunity than anything else where I, where I did the research realized that uh, betting is mostly uh, bought in physical retail. And when I say mostly, I'm talking, you know, 80, 90%. And it's one of those categories where, you know, apparel is another one where apparel is still heavily physical retail. Uh, you've got electronics is the opposite. Electronics was, I think, 70, 30 physical online as of 2016. Uh, so it's much worse now. Um, and so it's really doing the research and understanding like where people are buying the product and, and does it represent an opportunity or a risk? Like there, there's stuff like food, for example, that has really had a really hard time penetrating online versus brick and mortar and apparel is another one because of the sizing issues. Uh, but I think that there's opportunities in, in every category that's still heavily physical retail. I think that, the the coolest one I saw recently is a, a new bathroom company, uh, called shine that's doing direct to consumer bathroom, uh, remodels, just really cool. So there's stuff like that. That's, uh, that's, that's all out there. So are there considerations that you need to, to, uh, I guess, look into you know, in terms of like investing in like the infrastructure to build, I guess, the road to direct to consumer for, for your market? Well, the, I'm, I'm maybe a little confused by the question because the the infrastructure is largely in place. The biggest hurdle is absolutely capital, and in order to manufacture, ship, um, and actually do your do the marketing that's needed to to uh, you know sell the product. I think a lot of people when they start up a company, they and I God, I've seen this so many times. They're like, all right, great, like we can ma manufacture something for twenty bucks, and then we can sell it for fifty. And we're going to make a, you know, $30 raw margin and that's 60%. Awesome. And they don't think about duties, freight, warehousing, shipping, 3PL fees, and then their cost of acquisition on top of all of that. And then the return rate on top of all of that, and which is literally just dollars out. And so I think that uh, the infrastructure that's really needed is, again, a really robust understanding of your margins and will the business work once you have all the infrastructure set up? And I think that's almost more important than the actual setting up of the infrastructure. I think people jump at the opportunity to take on inventory really quickly without thinking about the actual uh, the actual margin breakup of where all the dollars are going to go, and they always leave out that marketing expense. So you know the infrastructure is there in terms of Shopify exists. You can spin up an online store very quickly with very little development skill set. Um, you can, you know, all the Stripe infrastructure and payment, Shopify payments infrastructure is there to take payments and process credit cards without you having to store and be responsible for people's data and security. Um, you've got uh, PayPal, which is fantastic from a brand trust perspective. You've got your uh, Facebook ad ecosystem, your Google ad ecosystem, Instagram, Twitter, all those, those, those don't convert as well as Facebook and Google. Um, and so you've got all these uh these items in place. And then really 
The hardest part is probably manufacturing and supply chain from a logistical perspective. Uh, I think that that's where a lot of people also don't understand is uh, especially around a minimum order quantity issue. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, well, actually, I just did a startup competition where somebody said this. Uh, we will manufacture for $2 a piece, this this piece of plastic, and we're going to start with our manufacturer. Uh, we're going to ask them to do a 1,000-unit run, so we'll have very little manufacturing startup costs. <laughs> and I said, I said, do you know what the minimum order quantity is for this piece of plastic? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, they're, not, they're probably not going to put your mold on, on the machines on the line and stop what they're doing with everybody else to produce 1,000 units of your $2 item. It doesn't make any sense for them. Their, their minimum order quantities are probably in the tens or hundreds of thousands of this, of this piece. And they literally had no idea. They never asked that question. And so you know, a lot of people also don't understand the capital costs that are going to be needed in order to get something off the ground, especially in a commodity space where you really got to convince somebody to stop the contract manufacturer to stop what they're doing and focus on your product and your design and turn away some business for a certain period of time from other customers. Got it. So I think yeah, that, that didn't answer my question. So the next thing you said was about uh, having a product that had a low complexity supply chain. And I think we're kind of touching on this right now. Why was that important for you? Well, and I want to be super clear. I, textiles is not as low complexity as I initial, initially assumed. Uh, actually, in the last couple of years, have uh, had a massive appreciation and, and much greater understanding. And uh, I've got a huge knowledge base now when it comes to textile manufacturing. That being said, there is no Bluetooth component. <laughs> there is no firmware. There is no software engineers on staff. There is no uh, app development. Um, and that, that's what I mean by that is most startups, they are going to build something like a, an IOT product that will help you sleep or a new connected toy that every kid's going to love and is going to be on the front shelf of every, uh, you know, target store. Um, and that type of startup cost is astronomical compared to something that has maybe only a couple components. Um, and while the, the bedding, you know, the tech, textile space in general is complex, especially when it comes to uh, selecting your SKUs and making sure that you're not overdoing it on different combos of sizing and colors and patterns, um, really the, the two components, right, are the fabric and the elastic when it comes to our sheets. And you've got the thread and the sewing. And there is a process to it. It does take time. And you do have to have the initial fiber production in order to create the fabric. Um, but it is not a connected IoT product that, that requires millions of dollars to get off the ground. Hey, real quick. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Got it. So if someone out there is listening to this, here's a list of criteria and they want to guarantee their business success. Is there any reason why someone would not want to follow this model or why someone should not rather? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> like the, no one, no one ever starts a, a company without optimism. I think all founders are a little delusional and that's a good thing. That's actually something that Techstars tells us on day one is you're all, you're all deluded. Um, and I love that. Uh, and you know, I, I, I went into this from a really emotional, uh, 
difficult place in my life where I was very upset. My last company ended with, with, uh, with my time there. Um, and I think that if I had been in a slightly better place, I don't know if I would have gone headfirst into my own brand. I might have, I might have taken some time to work at a larger company, get, get a little more money in my bank account. Um, I worked for free for myself for 15 months. Not everybody can do that. I didn't pay myself until, you know, February of this year. Um, and so I think a lot of people who are trying to start a company need to ask themselves, have they done the prerequisite pain of maybe learning or failing or trying something else, uh, potentially at somebody else's company? I think they need to ask themselves, can I live off of very little or nothing for an extended period of time? I'm talking 12 months. Um, and they also need to ask themselves what the goal is of the company. For me, uh, the goal initially was to build a lifestyle company that I could live off of and be financially independent off of. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and I wanted to do that in order to open myself up to other possibilities in my life and have a little bit more flexibility to see my family. I had a, a new nephew at the time. Now I have a new niece, two weeks old today, which is awesome. Um, and it, I kind of, to be honest, I got a bit of a tiger by the tail when we did Indiegogo. It ended up, uh, people loved the brand. They loved the, the product. Um, we ended up doing $284,000 crowdfunded on Indiegogo. Uh, and we all, that, that wasn't by accident. We prepared, we, we did a lot of prep for about 12 weeks ahead of that crowdfund launch. And so I think a lot of people need to ask themselves, uh, are, am I ready? Am I prepared? Do I have the experience? Do I understand what I'm doing from a business model perspective? Uh, do I have a product that's going to be received very well? Uh, is the pricing of the product going to both please people from a value perspective, which ours very much does and have enough margin for me to have all of my variable costs uh, covered, plus enough margin left over to cover my fixed costs. And, and these are all questions that are, that, are, that are basic, but crucially important, and I don't think people give them enough time of day. And so these are all the risks of starting a business. You could take you know, your entire life savings and put it into something, and then the day of the crowdfund launch, nobody buys it. And, I, and I've seen that, you know, you go on Reddit and other places on the entrepreneurship subreddit, which I, you know, I, I participate in. I, I enjoy that community. Um, you see tons of people with that story. And it's and so you just got to be really careful about being very methodical as you're getting going and being very honest with yourself about what your capabilities are, what they aren't. Um, like, for example, I asked myself, should I start, should I start a software company? Because I had some really interesting software ideas. Uh, I had been in this startup ecosystem for years and I had a whole list of business models that I loved. And I ended up choosing a physical good because that was what I thought I was best at, even if the other models were maybe a larger market or more compelling from a, a mission ethos um, or, a, or a tech ethos. And so I, I, uh, I think a lot of people need to figure that all these questions out ahead of time and very few do. Right, and then I think for you, this particular model that you you came up with and you're following is, is specifically for someone that, in your case, wanted this kind of lifestyle business and also the financial independence and the kind of flexibility that it affords you. Um. Yes. Yes, and no. I mean, I don't. I uh, I think that I really want to. <laughs> we went around a circle uh, at TechStars a while ago, ten founders, and and we you know talked about why we why we started our companies. 
And the number one reason everybody said was that we were uh, sick of taking orders from other people. <laughs> so, so I think a lot of the a lot of people listening to this podcast can probably relate to that. A lot of people, uh, I I love living or dying by my own hand. I I don't like having to do you know things that I disagree with as an employee at other companies and follow marching orders. I've never been really good with authority. I got fired from my first job out of college in five months. It was at the world's largest hedge fund in Connecticut, and I really did not fit in well there. Um, and so that's a, that's just something for me personally is my primary motivation. But also the, the financial independence, the flexibility, I get to come home to Florida to see my, my new niece who's two weeks old, and uh, I get to travel abroad uh, when the occasion strikes. And I don't have to ask an employer for time off to visit my family, which is just the weirdest system that we set up for ourselves. <laughs> like, can I please go see my family for Christmas? Uh, so yeah, that's there's a, there's a lot baked into why I, why I do what I do. Yeah, so I guess this is your your other side of this now, where you like you said, a lot of people are going down this path, and you, I think you're 100 percent right. A lot of them that are listening are also thinking this is that they don't like taking marching orders. They don't want they want to. They don't want to kind of be dragged along by circumstances of life. They want to be able to design their life. Now that you're on the other side of it, is there anything now that you're looking at that you still cannot free yourself from that maybe people think they might be able to free themselves from by pursuing this route? Well, sure. I think especially when you, and this is a consideration that a lot of people uh, need to think about is like, is this going to be self-funded, revenue-funded, crowd-funded entirely? Or are we going to have to take on some outside capital at some point? For us, we did have to take on outside capital, and we are continuing to do so um, in the future. And so that I mean, I, I, at least I assume that we will. Um, and so basically, uh, I think the one thing that I thought I'd be able to get away from that I haven't is responsibility to others, both on the, when you take money from people, you have this really strong fiduciary responsibility to maximize their return and to make sure that you are responsibly managing their money. And to, the way to offset that and the way to make sure that you don't have investors breathing over your neck is to be very honest with them up front about what the company is and what it isn't. And I, I had conversations with venture capitalists early on who wanted to give me, you know, half a million dollars at X million dollar valuation. And they wanted to give me this and that. And, and, you know, a lot of them said, but I want you to commit to either building this into a massive multi-hundred million dollar brand or to going bankrupt in 12 months. And then they didn't say it like that. Right. But that's the undertone is like, spend all the money and grow as fast as you can. Um, or bust. And I don't, like that model. I wanted something where I'm going to be independent. I wanted something that was profitable first, scalable second. And a lot of startups go scalable first and then profitable second. And that's not what I wanted. Um, and so being very honest with people up front and setting that expectation, they'll respect you for your honesty. They might say, Hey, it's not a fit for our fund. Um, but the people who do invest in you are going to be on a total same page as you. And I, I, I love that. Um, and then it gives you time to, to think about what you want the business to be in the future. And then on the other side, I do have responsibility to my employees. I have a full-time team of four. Uh, I've got multiple consultants across the country um, that work with me as well, manufacturing partner, warehousing partners. Um, and I love them all, and, I, and we're hiring more people. We're going to probably be about 10 full-timers by the end of 2019. Um, and 
I think about them every day in terms of am I being good to them from a, a salary perspective, from a bonus perspective, healthcare. Uh, they can work at home. They can take as much time off and sick time as they need, so on and so forth. So I think responsibility in both directions is something that I I probably didn't anticipate as much. I thought that I would just be free and and be able to do my own thing, but that's that's not really how it works. Yeah, when you get any type of success. Right. I mean, it sounds like it's still worth the trade-off, though, for you. Uh, for me, I think so. I, yeah, I, I, I'll be happier, um, I think, when the company is maybe a year from now and I've got a more robust infrastructure set up underneath me. Um, right now, I'm still doing a lot of the core functions, at least uh, 50-50 with some of the folks that I have. But some of the, pe- the people I've hired have all been in core functions, you know, product, supply chain, uh, customer service, marketing. And uh, I love that I've done all those jobs myself so I can hire a little bit more appropriately once I've actually done the position and understand what's needed. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I wouldn't trade this for what I was doing two years ago. No way. Um, or it, it's it could have failed and that's fine. Like you also have to be fine with failure. I, I remember when I started it in October 2017, I said, I'm going to know by about February if this is going to work or not. And by February we were capturing emails ahead of our Indiegogo campaign at like a 46% conversion clip, which is nuts. Like nobody captures emails at 46%. And we ended up capturing 11,000 emails in seven weeks ahead of our campaign. Uh, and that was the best prep we ever did. Um, and so that was when I knew in like February, March, 2018, that we've got something pretty special here. And, uh, but if it, but if we hadn't, if we had captured emails at a 5% or 1% clip and nobody, everybody said, ah, we're not interested, I would have just packed it up and, and started sending my resume out and you gotta be okay with that. Right. So you, this part, this is part of that 12 weeks of prep before any go-go. What were you guys doing to get 11,000 emails so, so quickly? Uh, so on a, on a high level, uh, basically you have to get, you have to think about a crowdfunding campaign as whatever your goal is. And by goal, I mean internal goal. Your external goal should be different than your internal goal. So our internal goal was 100000 External on the Indiegogo was 50000 The reason being is because uh, the platforms have algorithms that reward campaigns that fully fund on their first day. And we wanted to have a goal that we thought we could hit on our first couple days, um, which is you know an interesting way for them to set it up, but it is what it is. Uh, and so we wanted to do a hundred thousand uh, dollars, generally speaking for your first three days of crowdfund and your first 72 hours, you want to get 30% of your goal. So we needed $30,000 in our first three days. If our average order value was going to be a hundred dollars, right? $70 item price multiplied by 1.5 items per order. Then that means that we needed to get 300 customers in our first three days. What that meant is that, you know, generally speaking, an email list converts at about 3%. Um, if you have people that are engaged. And so if we wanted 300 customers in our first three days and we knew all of them were going to come from our email list or most of them, that meant we had to get 10,000 emails, period, in order to guarantee ourselves 300 customers in our first 72 hours. And so that's exactly what we did. And so we basically, from a tactical level, that from a from an overarching level, that became our goal, 10,000 emails by May 1st, by launch day last year. And so from a tactical level, we basically set up about 12 different landing pages on uh, using Kickoff Labs, which is a great piece of software. Um, we had that hooked into our Shopify, obviously, and our MailChimp to capture emails. 
And we had, you know, 12 different landing pages of different headers, H1s, different images, different calls to action. And then we did about 50 different Facebook ad variants targeting lookalike audiences of uh, other crowdfunding campaigns. Uh, we got those lookalike audiences because we worked with a marketing agency that I actually trust with my life in this space, in the crowdfunding space. Just an FYI to everybody listening, there are an outrageous amount of predators and sharks. Don't do business with people willy-nilly. They will promise you the world. They will say, oh yeah, give us $2,000 setup fee and 20% of every sale that we bring in and we're going to spend money like crazy and you're going to make so much cash. What they'll do is they'll take your $2,000 setup fee, they'll spend $800 on ads and they will come back to you and they will say, sorry, the ad didn't convert like we were hoping them to. We can't just allocate money to campaigns that aren't converting. So uh, good luck. And then they will take their take your money in peace. Uh, and you'll be lucky if it's only 2000 A lot of them charge 5000 for a setup. And so basically, I found an agency th- through referrals that I felt really passionately about. They're actually still my agency of record. Can, can you say can you say that the agency? Yeah, sure. It's Russell Marketing, uh, and I think the I think the website's like russellmarketing.co. Will Russell is the CEO there. Great guy, um, good friend of mine. Now we've been working together for over a year now. It's crazy to think about. And uh, you know, Will. And the, and the Russell marketing team, they flew out to Boulder. They helped me identify if this was going to be a, a big enough opportunity or not for them. Um, you know, I would highly recommend working with them over, over other agencies that I spoke with. And I spoke with pretty much every major agency in the crowdfunding space. Um, and basically, we were honed in on the same goal, which was 10,000 emails. We knew why we had to get it. And we worked together to, uh, you know, I did all the content, all the copywriting, all the photography, videography. I had friends that could help with everything. Um, still had to pay them, but it's nice to know people who can help with video and photo. Um, and then uh, Will and I set up all the landing pages and all the software together. Um, and I built our Shopify site from the ground up. And uh, yeah, we ended up optimizing everything. We ended up having about four different landing pages for two or three core ad sets that were converting uh, super, super well. Like I said, about forty-six percent, which is which is nuts. Anything over ten percent is great. Twenty percent is epic. Um, and so we were we were thrilled and just <laughs> almost couldn't believe it when we saw what was happening with our with our email capture rates. So you were setting up these different ads and driving to different landing pages, and it sounds like a pretty could get a pretty complex like matrix of combinations. Like, how did you decide what is was what is worth testing? Uh, well, you basically just want to te- A-B test uh, several different core things, right? You want to test images. You want to test H1 text. You want to test H2. And then you want to test your call to action and placements of the call to action and where the button is. And the, I mean, you could test the color and stuff like that. But we were we were purple, so we were always going to have purple buttons. Um, every, that's always the funniest A-B testing case study that people always cite is like, did you test the color like blue or green um, or red? Um, but like it's, it's a button. Um, and so, but there, you know, the, the, the really, the, the really interesting thing is understanding where your traffic's coming from. So for us, we're running Facebook ads, everybody in 2018 and now in 2019 interacts with Facebook on their phone. So 70% of our visitors come in from mobile. And so 70% of your visitors are coming from mobile. You don't give a damn what the desktop version looks like. You only care what the mobile version looks like. And a desktop version can basically, you know, do what it needs to do. Um, and so we really optimize our landing pages for mobile visitors. We, we were, you know, maniacal about like an obsessive about what people saw the moment they hit the page. They needed to see 
an incredibly clear, concise value prop, a, a, an image that gets the entire brand across and intuitively tells them what we're selling in one image, and then a very concise H2 that describes the product, and then a button all above the fold so they don't have to scroll down whatsoever for them to give us their email. And that was core to what we did. And we tested a bunch of different stuff. And, you know, we got that conversion rate up from, I think it was like 30% first week, 38, 39, all the way up to, to the mid 40s. And so that was just constantly optimizing. And then once we were about there, we didn't touch anything because we were, we were afraid of breaking anything. Do you remember how much time you gave between each of these like uh, optimizations to see if you maybe not time's already ended question, but maybe like what budgets even that, that you you put into this before you decide okay that's not working or that is working? Yeah, so we did we did uh, one thousand dollars initially of ads for our first uh, week because we want, we wanted to drive a ton of traffic to see what was happening, and it's not really a time. Uh, test? I, I I don't think. I think my philosophy on A/B testing is it's a it's a visitors test. So if you're getting, you know, let's say a uh, thousand visitors a day, that's a good enough sample size for you to make decisions on like a one to two day basis. You know, if you're only getting a hundred visitors a day, ah, that's it, not really a good enough sample size for you to make sweeping decisions without like probably then seven or eight or nine days worth of data. But we could make decisions very rapidly because I, I'm a firm believer that like a thousand people are a thousand people, and if if you know if you take a stats course, like that's a pretty good sample size as long as it's coming from a broader population. And and it was. I mean, we were we were basically just targeting people who had done crowdfunding, and so they were all part of the same population of people who had backed prior Kickstarter Indiegogo campaigns. And so we we made these decisions within a day or two. Uh, because we were getting so many visitors to the page and, and that's the best way to do it is just get a mess of people in and, and make calls quickly. You got to be intuitive with this stuff. I think that's a good point. The, the the common approach that you hear out there is to scale your ads up very slowly. But I think when you're starting out, you just kind of have to pay to learn. You have to pay for, for, for this data and you're saying don't dabble with advertising, like get as many people in as possible. So you shorten that iteration, shorten those cycles between what you're learning. And for you guys, you know, a thousand dollars a week, it's, it's a lot of people here that like, wow, that's like way too much money to be spending on ads at once. But you guys learn very quickly if you guys had a product that, that was desirable or not. And then just knowing that you can move forward with confidence. Exactly. And, and, and I'll, I'll be, I'll say two things on this because I know we're, we're coming close, I think to the end of the podcast more or less. So I don't want to, I'm a talkative guy. Number one is that if you don't have a thousand bucks to spend on ads, you shouldn't launch a company. Like if you don't like, if like, if like, like period, um, whether that money's yours or an angel round friends and family, alone, like whatever. If you don't have a thousand bucks, a thousand bucks on ads sounds like a lot to you. You might not be at the right time in your life to start a company. That's totally fine. It just, it is what it is. Um, and then number, number two is, um, I think that I see a lot of people make common mistakes on Facebook and other advertisings, other, other advertising channels where they're spending money, but they're not being targeted and who they're spending. They're not testing different content to see what works. And then this is the weirdest mistake that I see. The weirdest mistake. People don't respond to the comments on their ads. And I don't understand what people are thinking. 
when they don't do that. If somebody has taken the time on their Facebook feed to stop, click comment on a freaking ad, which we all hate ads, and ask a question or say something, the brand needs to engage with that person. They need to respond. And frankly, they need to respond within 20 minutes. Otherwise, you, you lose them. And so I've got, you know, the Facebook pages manager on my phone. I've got, uh, you know, my whole team. We're always clued in the Facebook. We're available by phone any time of the day. I'll literally pick up the phone at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night if somebody calls. I'm super obsessive about this stuff. I don't like it when people's questions go unanswered because you've paid and you've done all the work to get them to the point of being interested enough to ask a question. And then some people just don't respond on comments. And I'm like, what the hell are people doing? And so I think that, that was probably the best thing that we ever did was we were responding to comments in live time and we were having conversations with people and it led to ads that had thousands of likes and thousands of comments. And guess what? Our comments all count in the, in the comment count when people are scrolling through their ads and they see like 2000 comments, maybe a thousand of those are from the brand because we're answering a thousand questions. But that social proof, that raw comment number and that raw like number is incredibly crucial to click through on your Facebook ads. And so you have to have very engaging content and then engage with people. Yeah, I think that's a common mistake where uh, a lot of people get into this idea of starting an online business so that they don't have, so they can kind of automate everything, step right. away, not have right. to talk to, to people. They want to start a consumer business so they don't have to deal yeah. with people. <laughs> right. So I think that that's a mindset shift that needs to happen where you're still dealing with people, you're still selling people, you're still interacting with people. So, you know, act as if you are, you know, working with people. So I think that that's a really good point that you make. So actually, I want to talk talk about this one last thing, which is really interesting, which is that you mentioned that one of the key ways that you've been able to grow this business, grow this brand is by helping people before asking for their money. I think the whole part of making sure you're in there and, and answer people's questions and your comments, it all makes sense. And then one particular example you gave was around a, a resume advice uh, <laughs> post on Reddit that somehow leads to more sales for your Sheets and Giggles products. So tell us about why this works. Well, it's okay. So for, for folks that are listening, if you're in the middle of a job hunt, in the middle of a job search, just Google resume advice Reddit. Uh, Reddit's R-E-D-D-I-T, uh, fourth largest website in the world. And uh, it's the first Google result that comes up is this post that I wrote in February 2018. And it's honestly the best thing I think I've ever done with my life because it's been viewed over a million times. It's gotten us a ton of traffic to our site. It's been fantastic for our SEO. And from a, from a high level, right, I used to be a recruiter back when I was 23, 24. And I know I've seen tens of thousands of resumes. And one thing that always bugged me is that the kids – from and this is like a side rant has nothing to do with betting the the kids that came from harvard mit yale berkeley stanford um emory university where i went to um every those kids had the best resumes and and even if followed them into their 20s and 30s and 40s is people who went to top tier schools had excellent resumes and people who didn't didn't and unfortunately a lot of times with a screener on a resume it's the first impression that people see when they're, when they're a screener where they see your resume format and they immediately judge you based on literally the text and the white space and how it's set up and how it looks aesthetically to their eye. And they judge you on other stuff too, like you know sexism and 
racism and other stuff like that. Um, but the, but the format is crucial. You have to fish with the right bait. You can have the best content in the world and you could be the best person in the world. But if someone's not going to give you a resume, their full attention and sit up straight when they see it across their desk, they're not going to ask you for an interview. And so what I did is I put together all the best resumes that I had ever seen from any of my candidates into one cohesive resume format. That's one page, super, super straightforward, good use of white space. And I basically put it out there for free on Reddit, just as a download link, link to our Shopify for downloading from our from our web store. And I was floored by the response. It became a top upvoted post of all time on the job subreddit. Did not expect that. Um, it's been linked in like articles online. It's been linked in, uh, you know, people send it to each other all the time. And I did a follow up post and that got a lot of attention too. But this resume post has really taken on a life of its own. Um, and so from a, from a high level, I, I believe in like helping other people before you help yourself. And like, there's like a lot of belief in good karma around that. And so I wanted to write this post basically because I thought to myself, one is I've got this resume format that I really want to share with people. And I love helping people with their job hunts. And this is a good way for me to help a lot of people at once. Cause on, on Reddit, people ask me a lot for like resume advice. And I just, I decided to make this one big post about it instead of responding to people individually. And then two is from a business standpoint for us, we're a commodities product. And so we really just need brand impressions and we need people to see us on Reddit, to see us on Jiffy, to see us on Facebook, to see us on their podcasts. And over time, when the next time they buy betting, they might think of sheets and giggles. Um, and for a lot of people that, uh, frankly, we helped out with their job hunt, I've gotten emails from hundreds of people who told me that they got their new job straight up because of the resume change where they hadn't gotten an interview for months. And that type of, and then they say, and to celebrate my new job, my new paycheck, I bought your bed sheets. Wow. That to, that to me is the coolest, like it, it, like it makes me feel this unbelievable connection with my customers and the community around sheets and giggles. And like, it almost makes me tear up a little bit, be, honest to God, because like, I remember when I was a recruiter, I used to have people email me and call me and ask me like, please, I need a job, my family, like I need healthcare, I need money for my kids, like all the, it was, it broke me when I was a recruiter. And so to be able to have that impact on people while I'm starting a freaking betting company, um, and to have that like very personal connection with my customers and a lot of them, um, I don't know, it just, it's, it's very special to me. And, um, and I think that people remember that and they share it on Reddit and they talk about SNG in a really, a really positive way. And, um, it has nothing to do with betting, but I think it has a lot to do with like the brand and the company that we want to build. Uh, we even have a little blog post about it where it's like, why, why is a betting company talking about resumes? Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to read about thread counts for the 1000th time? Like go, go Google other betting content. Like that's boring. Here's something interesting. Um, and, and so, uh, that's the brand that I want to build is a little zany, a little off the wall, very helpful. Um, and, and just that does a lot of good in the world. And that comes down to everything that we do. We, we plant trees for every order. We donate a lot of sheets to homeless shelters. Um, and, uh, we save a lot of water and a lot of, uh, pesticides and insecticides and we, we have fun doing it. So. Thank you so much for your time, Colin. Sheetsgiggles.com is a website. Again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. To get your exclusive 30-day extended trial, visit shopify.com slash masters.